This is A Closer Look with Arthur Levitt. Arthur Levitt is a former chairman of the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission, a Bloomberg LP board member, a senior advisor to the Promontory Financial Group, and a policy advisor to Goldman Sachs. John Carreyrou has won two Pulitzer Prizes for investigative reporting, and his coverage of the Silicon Valley blood testing company Theranos for the Wall Street Journal has won George Polk and Gerald Loeb awards. He published his first story about problems with the Theranos blood testing system in October of 2015. By March of this year, the SEC had charged its founder, Elizabeth Holmes, with defrauding investors and she's facing criminal charges. His in-depth reporting is now a book, Bad Blood, Secrets and Lies in a Silicon Valley Startup. The New York Times Book Review says, It's chilling. Reads like a West Coast version of All the President's Men. He joins me now for a closer look. Elizabeth Holmes' first idea a patch that could diagnose and treat conditions, didn't work out. But it impressed a professor at Stanford, Channing Robertson. He encouraged her to pursue her dream and joined her board. Is that why she dropped out of Stanford? Robertson was her first enabler, for sure. I mean, like you said, the original idea was this patch, this futuristic patch that would uh, have these micro needles inserted that would insert themselves in the arm and draw minute amounts of blood and diagnose you with whatever ailed you and then practically simultaneously uh, treat you. Um, You know, he had to know he's a a guy, obviously, who's... um, very, he was very well regarded on the Stanford faculty, a star of the engineering school there. And he had to know that this was science fiction and that it was completely unfeasible. Um, and yet, you know, he did uh, encourage her to drop out. He did join her board and he did accompany her for more than a dozen years. And um, his backing uh, and, you know, the, his reputation uh, really helped her gain credibility when she was just a teenager, when she was 19 years old and back in 2003, 2004, and she was pitching venture capitalists. There's no question in my mind that he was her first big enabler. Why would he do that? You know, he's never agreed <clears throat> to speak to me. I've tried several times, um, and uh, he remains, I think, in, in the Holmes camp and a supporter of Holmes. The, that, that obviously becomes very difficult now uh, to justify I think if if I'm guessing what was going on is he saw a young woman who was very passionate, very intelligent, um, great saleswoman. He must have sensed that. Uh, And he probably figured that uh, she was going to be able to raise a lot of money and that with that money, she would hire uh, people who actually had the formal training and had the degrees, the medical degrees and the PhDs, and that um, they would they might take her there. And that uh, and her vision might actually come true uh, over the years. And, and then th- this might become, you know, a great Silicon Valley startup and he might become very wealthy. I think those are the things going through his mind. Who was her first investor? So the first invest, the first person who cut her a check for a million dollars was Tim Draper. Um, who's That's a, a good name. Right. Famous venture capitalist uh, who uh, <clears throat> has made a ton of money over the past 20 years. Um, 
and and is actually from uh, a line of venture capitalists. I think his grandfather is uh, known as the first uh, venture capitalist in Silicon Valley. Um, and and the reason it was Tim Draper is Elizabeth and her parents uh, and her younger brother had lived in um, near Palo Alto and in, in Woodside, California, in the late 80s and early 90s for several years, and they'd been neighbors with the Drapers. And Elizabeth had gotten to know Jesse Draper, Tim's daughter. So when she dropped out of Stanford a, a little bit more than a decade later, she was able to knock on his door, and by then he was quite prominent. Um, and and uh, he met with her, and as he later described it, was really impressed by her her passion and her um, her her willpower to to uh, execute on her vision. And 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 in fact, he was one of the first people to compare her to Steve Jobs after that meeting uh, in a, a private conversation with his uh, partner Steve Jurvetson. Uh, he compared her to Steve Jobs. He he said that Elizabeth reminded him of uh, Steve Jobs. Now, the other lead player, Ramesh Sonny Balwani, uh, got involved with the company and then personally with Elizabeth. Was the personal involvement what really brought them together? They first met in Beijing in the summer of 2002. This was before Elizabeth had even started her undergraduate studies at Stanford. Uh, they met in the, the context of Stanford's summer intensive Mandarin program, which included uh, several weeks of instruction in Beijing. And then uh, and then she went to Stanford for a year and a half, and they stayed in touch. And then when she dropped out, um, he became sort of her advisor. And, and he's a guy who had uh, made a lot of money in the late 90s dot-com boom. Um, I, I like to think that it was a really a lucky stroke. He he joined uh, a, a an unknown startup in in Sunnyvale, California, I think it was, uh, that got acquired a few months after he joined it as its number two executive in, in 1999. And he walked away from that deal with more than $40 million. And, and that was five months uh, before the dot-com bubble, uh, you know, peaked and then, and then the bubble burst. Did Theranos have any successes, tests that did work without cheating, any real progress or... In your judgment, was it a fraud the whole time? Well, it wasn't a long con in the sense that Elizabeth Holmes dropped out of Stanford in late 2003 with this, uh, you know, premeditated plan to, over the next 12, 15 years, defraud investors of hundreds of millions of dollars and put patients in harm's way. That's not how this this happened. She she dropped out of Stanford because she really did want to become a successful Silicon Valley entrepreneur. She idolized Steve Jobs. She even started dressing like him and 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 sort of copying his management techniques. Um, she she really uh, had this dream to to be a, a, a great entrepreneur. She wanted to join the pantheon of these uh, billionaire tech founders. But along the way, um, she ran into difficulties. Uh, science is, is hard. Uh, it's harder than coding. Um, a lot of uh, Silicon Valley startups are b based on coding, on, on computer programming, and on software. Um, uh, Theranos, uh, its product, was a medical device. And, and uh, medicine and science are harder. And I think as she uh, encountered these challenges and these failures, uh, she started... Uh, papering them over and continued to overpromise to investors and to the public. 
Um, and and it reached a point where the the gap between what she promised and what she'd achieved became enormous, and and uh, that uh, effectively turned Theranos into a fraud. Did did she ever have technology that worked? The the short answer is no. There were three iterations of the technology, and she never got any of them to work properly. But she had to know that. So what that is suggesting is that she knowingly perpetrated a fraud. Of course she knew it. She knew exactly what the state of the technology was. She knew very well that the, the tests hadn't been properly validated to prove that they were reliable and accurate. I think um, the reason that she could rationalize this is that she came at this from a culture of the traditional Silicon Valley. Jobs were was her idol, and um, uh, she knew that Jobs and, and Gates and, and people like Larry Ellison, who in fact was an early investor in Theranos, that they had all faked it to some extent before they made it. They had overpromised. You know, Ellison was famous for overpromising about what it's uh, about what Oracle's uh, early software could do, and and he was famous for delivering early versions of the Oracle software that was crawling with bugs. Uh, and I think Elizabeth channeled that culture and, and that ethos um, and forgot that what she was doing uh, was building a product that that was actually going to have a, an impact on patient lives because patients and doctors were going to rely on it for very important health decisions. And so I, I think um, uh, from there, you know, stems uh, a lot of the a lot of the problems. It's been said that among her investors, you won't find a major healthcare VCs such as MedVenture Associates, if they knew something others didn't, why didn't they warn anyone else? Well, the, the, the VCs that were experienced uh, in medical technology and diagnostics and, and biotech smelled a rat and were suspicious, but they didn't have proof that, that uh, Elizabeth and Theranos were completely overselling uh, what they had. Because uh, the few that, that did uh, have encounters with Elizabeth and the Theranos management and started asking hard questions were, were basically uh, told that very quickly that Theranos was no longer interested in talking to them. So um, it was a case where there was certainly some suspicion but no one had proof. And, and I would say the same uh, applies to the world of laboratory science and pathologists who were watching this Theranos uh, phenomenon as it, uh, as it became uh, public and, and as its profile, as the company's profile rose and as Elizabeth's profile rose in 2013, 2015, and 2015, there, there was a lot of uh, uh, you know, skepticism, but no one could prove that um, what she was saying wasn't true. Now, in the book, there are so many jaw-dropping stories involving major names who should have known better. But tell us how James Mattis, the current Secretary of Defense, got involved with Theranos. And isn't his story ethically problematic? Well, it is in the sense that he's now our, our current Secretary of Defense, and, and you really have to wonder about his judgment. Um, and, and a lot of people um, seem to think that, you know, Mattis is a voice of reason in the Trump administration, which kind of makes me smile. Um, but the, the way that Elizabeth met Mattis is, um, is actually through one of her biggest enablers, uh, the former Secretary of State, George Shultz. And uh, uh, she met Schultz in 2011, and, and uh, he became 
her biggest champion, joined her board, and then soon thereafter introduced her to uh, General Mattis at a Marine Memorial event in San Francisco. And she immediately pitched Mattis on the potential uh, that her technology had in the military. Um, you know, the, the, the vision that, that she sort of unspooled before him was that uh, Theranos' quick uh, finger stick test in the field um, would, would give answers to um, uh, doctors in the field about, you know, wounded soldiers uh, much more quickly and, and would therefore enable the, the army and the military to save lives. And, and Mattis, to his credit, uh, is a guy who, who was incredibly popular in the military, even though he could be gruff. Uh, because he really um, cared about his men, and he he would do anything he could uh, to protect his men and to keep them safe and and to to create conditions that were favorable to them, and so he really believed that this Theranos technology, as Elizabeth described it to him, could be a game changer. John, do you believe that Elizabeth Holmes is a crook? I believe she's a con artist. Yes, um, I believe she she's a con artist who started out uh, as a, a would-be entrepreneur, um, but I believe along the way uh, she started cutting corners and, and stopped listening to sound advice and started committing fraud uh, to achieve her her goals. And her goals were celebrity and wealth. She wanted to join uh, the likes of Mark Zuckerberg, of Larry Page, of Larry Ellison, uh, all these, uh, Steve Jobs, all these legendary uh, Silicon Valley tech founders who became billionaires and, and who became American icons. That was her goal. She wanted to be among them and ultimately she was willing and ready to do whatever it took to get there. Do you think she'll go to jail? I think there's a, a very decent chance that she will. Um, uh, the the evidence is pretty overwhelming, um, uh, based on on what I understand. Uh, the prosecutors in the U.S. Attorney's Office in San Francisco have uh, garnered uh, testimony from very key witnesses, uh, among them former uh, Theranos employees, uh, some of which some of whom were sources for my book. Um, and then there's you know there's email evidence, there's documents. Um, and there's uh, quality control data from the, the company's lab. There, there are the uh, two inspections that the FDA and uh, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services conducted in 2015. There's a really a, a trove, a critical mass of, of evidence. And using that evidence, I believe uh, that the government will be able to persuade a jury at trial uh, that she committed fraud. You write that for more than 20 years in journalism, You've never encountered anything close to the unbelievable campaign of intimidation against you and your sources. What happened to you while you were doing this investigation? Well, the, the first couple of months, I, I looked into the company quietly to, to see uh, if there was anything to the tip I had received um, and eventually made contact with a, an ex-employee who had just left the company and who had been in a key position. He had been the laboratory director at Theranos, and he was alleging all manner of, of wrongdoing. So, But I had to grant him confidentiality. He was being harassed by Theranos lawyers. He didn't want to be sued by the company. Um, so I agreed to, to keep his identity uh, confidential, and, and from there it became a, a game of corroboration, and, and I started making other sources among ex-employees, and then I went to... Um, the Arizona, which was the the sort of launch pad for uh, the Theranos partnership with Walgreens, it was where Theranos was offering its uh, finger stick tests in about 40 Walgreens stores, and I started uh, collecting uh, interviews with doctors and patients 
who had received erroneous uh, test results from the company. And then from there, um, I started confronting the company and, and started to ask for an interview with uh, Elizabeth Holmes and her boyfriend, uh, Sonny Balwani, who was the number two of the company. At first, I got uh, the runaround. Uh, they hired a, an outside uh, PR guy to sort of keep, keep me at arm's length. And uh, uh, in the meantime, it was surreal because as this went on for almost two months, uh, Elizabeth Holmes continued to uh, speak to uh, virtually every other reporter who asked for an interview uh, and appeared on TV and at conferences. And finally, I let the, the PR guy go, know that this strategy of putting me off was, was not going to work, that they, I was not going to go away. They needed to address my questions. So at that point, the, the Theranos approach uh, shifted from putting me off to uh, really uh, conducting a scorched earth campaign to kill my story and to intimidate my sources. And it started with a, uh, a big showdown at the Wall Street Journal uh, newsroom in a conference room at the Wall Street Journal in Midtown Manhattan with David Boies, uh, the famous litigator, who's uh, the company's outside counsel. And he came with uh, uh, two other lawyers from his law firm in tow, as well as Heather King, who was the general counsel of Theranos, who had previously been one of his partners at his firm. And we had a, a showdown in a conference room for five hours um, where they essentially, you know, uh, argued that I had misappropriated Theranos trade secrets and that I needed to uh, either return them or destroy them. Uh, oh, and that, by the way, also my sources were uh, feeding me wrong information um, and, and, you know, letting us know that, that um, if we didn't back down, uh, things were going to get ugly. And, and sure enough, within a few days, we started getting letters from David Boys explicitly threatening litigation. And at the same time, uh, s uh, several of my confidential sources um, uh, were sort of unmasked by Theranos and that uh, Theranos uh, was able to figure out uh, some of their identities and, and were um, uh, threatened and pressured. Uh, one of them was Tyler Schultz, the grandson of the former Secretary of State, George Schultz, who was on the Theranos board. And uh, uh, Tyler was put through an unbelievable ordeal. Um, he was, he was um, ambushed at his grandfather's house just off the Stanford campus by two boys Schiller attorneys and uh, pressured for months uh, after that uh, to, to uh, sign documents uh, essentially recanting what he had told me and, and naming my other sources. Theranos was deeply tied in with the American political, business, and media establishment through her high-profile board. I suppose she did this on purpose to give her cover. That's absolutely correct. I mean, her, her biggest trick, her, her tactic for 12 years until I came along was to associate herself with uh, older men who had uh, sterling reputations and, uh, and to leverage the, that association to, to gain credibility. It was sort of like uh, uh, reputational laundering. And uh, at the height of her fame in, in uh, 2013, 2014, she, she was surrounded by this board of uh, luminaries, uh, these, these uh, aging ex-statesmen uh, who were legends, you know, the likes of George Schultz, Henry Kissinger, um, Sam Nunn, uh, Jim Mattis, uh, uh, Admiral Roughhead, uh, the, the former uh, chairman, the former CEO and chairman of uh, one of the country's biggest bank uh, banks, uh, Wells Fargo, uh, Dick Kovacevic, 
um, um, all these guys, you know, were were on the board, and and she she had them believing in in Theranos, but also uh, she had them beholden to her because uh, she was paying them for their board duties in Theranos stock. Um, and at that point, in in late 2013, uh, early 2014, Theranos became valued at nine billion dollars. And so the the shares uh, of Theranos that she was doling out to them were worth millions of dollars. What an extraordinary con. Where were the regulators on Theranos? We assume with healthcare products there has got to be some oversight authority. Maybe maybe there isn't or she avoided it somehow. I mean they they bear some responsibility for for not monitoring and, and policing this company closely enough, but I would say uh, that it's mostly because uh, Elizabeth Holmes and Sonny Balwani uh, misled them. Um, she really, uh, uh, in her communications and, and contacts with the FDA, uh, was talking out of uh, both sides of her mouth. You know, she was telling the FDA one thing, uh, but then she was doing it another, and she was telling the public another. Um, the, the, like I said earlier, the interview, the cover story that arguably uh, did the most to, to really rocket her to fame was the uh, Fortune magazine cover story in, in June 2014. And in that story, uh, she made all sorts of claims, uh, namely that uh, Theranos could do hundreds of uh, blood tests off a tiny drop of blood pricked from the finger and, and get results back to patients and doctors very quickly. And um, in her communications with uh, the FDA, she was actually uh, acknowledging to the FDA that most, if not all, of the Theranos blood tests were being done on modified commercial analyzers. There's an anti-regulatory environment right now, but do you think the private companies such as Theranos that work in public health need more regulations and more rules for transparency? I think certainly in the in the realm of health and medicine uh, that regulations should not be weakened. They should not be diluted. Um, and I think uh, Exhibit A to support that argument is Theranos. Uh, I mean, th- this is a scandal that, that had very real implications for the public health. When I came along and started digging into the company, Theranos was on the verge of uh, expanding its partnership nationwide with Walgreens which would have meant that it, that the, the blood test services that Theranos offered in 40 Walgreens stores in Arizona and another two or uh, another handful in Northern California uh, would have been expanded to 8,000 other Walgreens stores throughout the country. Um, and and uh, as it stands, uh, scores of patients uh, you know had health scares and had their health impacted by these erroneous blood tests. And you can imagine... Uh, the scale of the disaster uh, had uh, Theranos uh, gone national with its blood tests through uh, Walgreens stores. Um, it, it would have been a real public health disaster. And, and so uh, I don't see how, in light of this, you can make a case for uh, loosening regulations in, in medicine and, and in health. How much did investors ultimately lose? And did people such as George Schultz or the, the other notable board members put hard money into the company, or was it all just stock that, uh, and options that they received? The, the board members, I don't believe, uh, put in any real money. They, they were uh, 
hoping to make a lot of money uh, by enabling her and being on her board. Um, uh, altogether, almost a billion dollars uh, went poof with Theranos in the end. Um, if you count the $65 million that Fortress Investment Group, the, the private equity firm, loaned Theranos last year to keep it afloat. Um, so about $65 million uh, in, in equity and in debt financing and, and another $900 million in, in equity uh, raises. And uh, the people who lost the most are uh, billionaires and, and uh, the family offices of billionaires, such as Rupert Murdoch, who, who by the way, controls the, the Wall Street Journal, my employer. Uh, he put in $125 million in Theranos. The Waltons uh, of Walmart fame uh, put in $150 million through two separate vehicles. Uh, the Cox family, which controls Cox Enterprises, the Atlanta-based uh, conglomerate, put in $100 million. Um, uh, the, the family of uh, our current Secretary of Education, Betsy DeVos, put in $100 million. Uh, a uh, San Francisco hedge fund called Partner Fund Management put in almost $100 million as well. Uh, the Mexican billionaire Carlos Slim put in uh, 25 or $30 million. So a lot of very wealthy people uh, lost a lot of money. Um, you could say that um, uh, they can afford to. Um, uh, these people are all, all billionaires, and, and in some ways the, these sums are rounding errors for them. But, you know, um, uh, my response to that is fraud is fraud. At its peak, Theranos was valued at $9 billion and employed 800 people. Earlier this year, the SEC charged its founder, Elizabeth Holmes, with running an elaborate years-long fraud. The full inside story of the rise and shocking collapse of Theranos by the journalist who first broke the story is now a national best-selling book, Bad Blood, Secrets and Lies in a Silicon Valley Startup. Author John Carreyrou, thank you for joining us. Thanks very much for having me. By the way, if you have comments about the show or suggestions for topics, please email me at a closer look at Bloomberg.net. That's a closer look, one word, at Bloomberg.net. And follow me on Twitter at Arthur Levitt, one word. This is a closer look with Arthur Levitt.